pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredo roupien. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. And my guest today is an editor, publisher, radio, TV personality, and cookbook author. He's one of the founders of American Stats Kitchen and Cook's Country Boat Cooking Shows from PBS Network. In 2016, he created Christopher's Kimball Milk Street, a multimedia instructional food organization that comprises from podcasts to a magazine and much more. And someone told me for some reason, if you have a maple syrup question, he's your guy. Mr. Christopher <laughs> Kimball, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot. We start, it's a tradition, this podcast, me being Portuguese, although living in the U.S. now for many years. Have you ever been to Portugal? You know, I've almost been to Portugal like 10 times. <laughs> What happened uh, those 10 times? My kids used to have vacation in March. And so it was like, uh, it's just a little early. Uh, I am going to go, however, because some of the food there is just absolutely phenomenal. And I know some of the, the great cookbooks that have come out of Portugal. So I'm a huge fan. And uh, so it's it's on my list this year. Perfect. I would like to know what happens in Rye in New York. Yeah. It, you know, at the time, it was the typical suburb. Uh, we also lived in Vermont uh, mm -hmm. on weekends in the summer. So we had a little cabin in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. And then we had a house in Rye. Rye at the time was one of those places where, you know, you'd leave after breakfast, you know, on the weekends or summer and get on your bike and come back at six, right? And uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So it was it was okay. Um, <laughs> it was my Vermont experience that I really love because that was a totally different world. And, you know, I was shoveling cow manure and, and haying and milking cows and doing all that stuff. And so that, you know, hunting and riding horses. And so that's really, when I think about my childhood, I think about Vermont. I don't think about Westchester County. I assume the maple syrup story starts in Vermont, not so much in New York, right? Kind of hard to do maple syrup in Vermont. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, we start. I started small. Uh, a good friend of mine I've known for 40 years. Uh, when his son Nate was young, they used he used to boil uh, sap outside on a little wood fire. That's how we got started with some buckets on the trees. Well, I I bought a small arch, an evaporator. You know, I did a few buckets on the trees, and eventually I get up to over 4,000 taps, uh, and we made over 1,000 gallons of finished syrup. We had a big operation. And um, what you, what I love about it is in late February, early March, the sap starts to run. It has to be cold at night and warm up during the day. And, you know, about every three days you boil, we had huge 250-gallon uh, containers for storing the sap. And people would come over and we'd make some food and we'd sit around and someone would put NASCAR on the radio. Okay. Whatever. I don't understand listening to NASCAR on the radio. It makes no sense to me. <laughs> But, you know, everyone would just stop by and they could see the smoke coming out of the sap house. So I, I love, it was just one of those things. Though It's also mud season in, in Vermont, so it's not a great time of year. But that is the thing you look forward to. Yeah. If someone asks if there's any, you know, some maple syrup geeks out there, is there one particular aspect of maple syrup that people actually don't know? Yeah, a couple. First of all, darker is always better. And when I was a kid, fancy grade A was what people sold. And they wouldn't even try to sell the dark stuff. It wouldn't sell. These days, the darker, the better, because it has more flavor. Uh, and that flavor really comes from, you know, organic matter in the sap. And as you get further into the season and it warms up, 
you get a darker syrup. So at the beginning of the season, you might get a very light syrup. Towards the end, you get a darker syrup. Uh, also, if you have a wood-fired arch, which is what I used, I think you get more flavor than if you could do a gas or oil-fired arch. The last thing is, Canada, in many places, they put the sap through a reverse osmosis machine, which means it takes out some of the water and concentrates the sugar. Sap is usually 2 2.5% sugar from the tree, and the reverse osmosis brings it up to 12 or 14%. I, I think those machines also you lose some of the flavor because you're boiling less. Mm-hmm. It's happening in a machine. So I think the old-fashioned wood-fired arch without a machine is really the best way to go. There you go. Growing up, who was, if there was, a good cook in a family? No. <laughs> there wasn't. My mother My mother was a brilliant gardener. Uh, she, We had a huge garden in Vermont. And in Rye, we lived on a corner, busy corner, and at one point, she took the entire front yard, turned it into a composted organic garden and had, you know, massive amounts of composted cow manure put down. So she was very famous, infamous in the town. Uh, um, but she used to cook or cook everything really simply. For Thanksgiving, there was a woman called Adele Davis who wrote a book called Eat Right to Keep Fit, very famous book from the 60s. And she said, cook your meat at the temperature you want it to end up at. So if you want a turkey to end up at, let's say, 170, pick a number, she would put the oven on 170. <laughs> and so uh, I, I would, she lived on a farm in Northwest Connecticut. So I get there with the kids at like a 10 in the morning and I'd secretly go turn the oven up like to 325. And so she never knew. And so into the day she died, she thought that, you know, she was roasting at 170. And she always used to say, smiling, you know, like, I haven't killed anybody yet. And I always used to say, well, that's not from lack of trying. (laughs) So that she was not a great cook. Uh, My father had no taste buds that I can perceive of any kind. Um, But I did in Vermont. um, There was a a farmhouse where there was a baker or Marie Briggs, and uh, she cooked all the food for the farmhands. So when I was working on the farm, I ate her food. And she also taught me how to cook, you know, on a rainy day when we weren't hanging or something. So I'd be making bread or cookies or something. And she was a good teacher. Because you mentioned Turkey, it was not it was not written here on my questions. But, you know, you can talk with, with Americans because every time I talk with them, they get upset at me because I'm Portuguese. Why people, you know, you cook, you get a chance once a year to cook turkey. Why is still like, I don't know, 60% of people still overcook their turkey? Do you think your people are just so afraid of salmonella and collapsing? What's the problem? A few reasons. The pop-up timers... Uh, I don't know if they use them anymore, but they, those tended to pop up around 185 in the breast, which is way too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, I think Butterball and all the other you know providers, purveyors of turkeys always, always want to err on the safe side, like the FDA always does. But the FDA says cook your pork to 160. Well, it's 140 is fine. Uh, and, and there is no, you know... Pork is not dangerous the way it used to be. So I, I think it's it's because they're told to worry about uh, salmonella and other E. coli and they overcook it. I think the other problem is dark meat. You could really cook the dark meat to 200. I mean, because you want you want to get all that connective tissue and other things uh, to, to melt and to cook. So you really want to cook the dark meat a long time. There's nothing worse than a turkey leg that's 165, right? Because it's got all the tendons and it's it's kind of gnarly. 
but the white meat you want it like 160 to 165. So that's the conundrum. Um, one way to solve that is to spatchcock, which means take the spine out and flatten it, even a turkey or a chicken. And that way, the white and dark meat actually end up both at the right temperature, or you end up flipping it, or you end up brining it or, or dry brining it so that even when the white meat's overcooked, it retains moisture. So there are tricks to overcome that, but I think people are are scared of food poisoning. I know. Uh, I've been 11 years in the U.S., but I never had it. Have you ever had a deep fried turkey? I did a deep fried turkey once, and I actually know, I know someone who had an uncle who died, literally died, from putting a very cold turkey into a very hot vat of oil, and it blew back on him. Uh, so it's pretty, you have to be very careful. You have to make yeah. sure that turkey is pretty close to room temperature before you put it in that oil. And um, the problem with it is it's great hot out of the oil, but as it sits around and cools off, it gets it gets kind of greasy and I, I don't like the skin later on. So for leftovers, I don't love it, but hot out of the oil, it's good. So you did a lot of, you know, with American Test Kitchen and Milk Street, a lot of testing, see what people are eating, your own recipes and all of that. Which food trends you would love they would have stopped and since you do a lot of recipe testing and all of that, was there anything at the beginning in the past that you said, there's no way people are going to start eating this and actually became a thing? Well, I wish that all food trends would go away. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I just like, well, here's one that really annoys me. It's like, if you're not going to eat meat, which is fine, um, you know, I have no problem with that. But don't try to cook foods to imitate meat, right? Yeah. I mean, most of the world doesn't eat a lot of meat because it was expensive. So meat in many cultures, most cultures, is more as a flavoring than it is the main thing. You, you don't get a pound of meat on your plate. A pound of meat serves eight people. If you look around the world, most cultures know a lot about preparing vegetables, right, and grains. And they have fermented sauces, they have chilies, they have spices, things that were not used in French cooking or Northern European cooking. So when someone wants to do fake meat, like a fake burger. I, I just don't understand it. You know, just just go cook vegetables and grains the way they should be cooked and don't try to imitate it. So I would say of all the trends, like in the 70s, you know, seitan was used to make meat and, you know, other things. And it's just, that's just crazy because it's never going to be as good. I don't want fake bacon. If, if you don't want to eat bacon, fine. But, but replacing bacon with like turkey bacon or non, you know, vegan bacon, it's just really not, great idea as far as I'm concerned. I mean, people do anything they want, but I don't get it. If Christopher Kimball had a restaurant, what cuisine would be? Well, first of all, I, I'd have to be certifiable uh, to want to own a restaurant because I know lots of chefs and people work in restaurants. And it's just, you know, unless it's the only thing you want to do in your life, yeah, uh, it's just really hard. It's hard to have a family. It's hard to avoid the alcohol and the drugs. Uh, you don't make any money because the margins in the restaurant business are like three or four percent. The competition's fierce. You end up with COVID and then, you know, unexpected things beyond your control change everything. I, I think if if I was crazy. In an ideal just, world, let's just put in an ideal world. Everything is fine. Ideal yes. world. I, yeah. I, I would do. Here's what's missing in a lot of places. and But it's what you can find in Europe. I, I would like a relatively inexpensive cafe. Uh, has a fairly limited menu, has some specials. Like in Paris, if you go to a cafe for lunch, there's always a special. But it's it's simple. It's not too expensive. It's good food. It's plentiful food. And nobody's trying to do something new or crazy. You know, yep. 
Mm-hmm. Keep it simple, keep it classic, do it well, have good service. And it's a place people, it's it's a community center for people, right? I think a restaurant ultimately is about the community. And so I, I think that's really important. So not too expensive, limited menu, specials, uh, and and it's 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 for neighbors, right? To meet neighbors and, and come there. So that's what I would do. Do you still enjoy, and you might, uh, I'm just a grumpy 35-year-old man. Do you still enjoy going to a lot of tasting menus, restaurants, staying there for three, four, five hours? Do you like that still? Or you, you did you ever like that? You'd have to drag me with wild horses to <laughs> a 10-course tasting menu. I hate tasting menus. Look, if you get something you like, you know, and you get two bites of it, then you go on to something else and then on to something else. You know, I, I just don't understand that. Like, give me a plate of something that I like and let me enjoy it. Yeah. Because every bite's going to be a little different. You know, it takes time to to experience, you know, a well-cooked chicken or a soup or whatever. So I, I don't want I don't want a little tantalizing bite. And then, you know, something on with an emerald sauce, emerald sauce or something, and then move on. There are exceptions. Um I'm a big fan of Le Bernardin in, in New York. I've been there in a while because of COVID. But if you if you have a tasty menu there, it's it's exquisite. And, and he's he's such a great chef. But in general, no. I, I, what I don't want is it's like you know, going to a 20 course tasting and you're getting sea like and you're getting this and you're getting that and pine needles. And it's like I I, I please don't try too hard, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just want to have a nice meal. I, I want the people, the service to be good and friendly, and I want the vibe to be good. And you know what? It'd be nice if I could bring my kids once in a while as well, you know? Yeah. So now I, I haven't done that in a long time. Yeah, I, I always give this example. You know, I also teach cooking classes, and people get very almost offended when I say I don't like it. And, you know, there's a time and a place for everything, but I just give this example. I'm not going to say the name of the restaurant, but I was in Copenhagen this summer or last summer, and... I, I was just by myself and it was a, only a four course menu, which is not long, but I was there for three hours and I don't yeah. drink, which doesn't help. So imagine that's an average of 50 minutes per dish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else you do? Right. I was, I was losing my mind, completely losing my mind. And the problem is that if you wait 50 minutes and the food blows your mind. Okay, sure. Uh, but the, it doesn't even do that. And I, I just didn't get it. And it's a very famous restaurant. I just didn't get it. But, but that's just me, I guess me and you, we have that in common. This like Nopa or one of those places. <clears throat> yeah, I don't I, I don't get it. And I think, look, I, I don't think a restaurant is a church. You know, I'm not going there to worship the food or the chef. I think I think there is a place for that. But I think in general, you know, that's why I love Paris, because you go to all these little around these small, the 11th, the 12th, you know, outside of the sixth and the third and the second. Uh, and they're little, you know, there's a wonderful little bistro called the Baratin. I was at a few months ago, you know, and it's all locals and it doesn't have many chairs and tables and they have a handful of items. I had some stuffed cabbage, which is great. And and the husband's out front and the, his wife is the chef in the back. And I think that's it. They have like t- three employees total. And it's fun. You know, I was at a place in Rome years ago that I've been to a few times. It's very, it's near the parliament, Dagino. It's in a little side alley. And it they have sort of two halves to the restaurant, and there's a waiter for each part. And the food is good; it's not fabulous. But the last time I was there, they were electing a new pope, which shows you how long it's been. And uh, that's you know the waiter was uh, my Italian's not very good, but the, he was talking about the pope and what was going to 
happen and everybody's having opinions about this and that. And, you know, it, it was like being in a neighborhood party. Yeah. You know, it, I loved it because another place, there was a place in Venice I went to years ago on one of the K's there. And uh, it was a blue collar place. People came in for lunch. Uh, there was no menu. You had like two choices. Someone got up and started singing. The waitress sat in somebody's lap. Uh, people were buying each other. You know, it was just, and the food was good. You know, it wasn't fabulous. It was good. But everybody you know, had been going there for years. And yeah. that's for me, that's the ultimate restaurant experience is you, when someone gets up and starts singing, that I'm there. Are you there? That's it. I have a feeling you're going to love Portugal, but that's just, it's okay. You've done, you were just mentioning a few places. You've done a fair amount of traveling throughout the years. What aspects of food culture would you like Americans to adopt in the reverse American food culture you wish was adapted somewhere else? I, I think we should stop talking about food all the time. We should stop analyzing food all the time. You know, food is not a philosophy necessarily. It's just part of life, you know. And so I think in other cultures, they integrate food into their lives as not as an external thing to be worshipped, but it's just part of you eat every day. The best example of that is going a cafe in Paris, right? So the French do know how to use food to socialize. And food is a social experience. It's not, you're not sitting there at the table by yourself eating your food. You're there with friends. I, I know someone I just talked to recently who said there were many times in Paris, she didn't eat dinner because she didn't have anyone to eat dinner with. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's purely social. And if you think about, you know, the Middle East, if you think about the, South America, Central America, et cetera, Mexico, you know, it's always about the people at the table. And it's about, about family and it's about friends and it's about socializing. So I think food is, is ultimately a social thing. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not art. It's social. And it's what brings people together. And, you know, the old, the oldest in human relations, one of the oldest traditions is your enemy comes over and you feed him or her the best pieces of food, right? Yeah. You always treat them like a king, even though they're your bitter enemy. And that that says everything you need to know about what food should be. And I don't think America understands that very well. I mean, I think that's a hard thing. I do think one thing great about the United States, though, is that we have no history to speak of, relatively speaking. And so we're able to go from the 60s, where the restaurants were by and large awful, except for a few French restaurants. And that's all there were, were you know, high-end restaurants, were all French, to now, you know, a generation or two later, where you can go to any town in America and get pretty good food. So we're able to discard history and move on very quickly. And, and the, the amount of improvement in our food in the last two generations is, is a miracle. And so that's the good news about the United States. There you go. We don't have traditions, but you know, that, that allows us to throw away the traditions and just go, just go at it. Some of it's good, some of it's not, but you're challenged to go to any sort of town and not find something good to eat now. And mm -hmm. that wasn't true back when I was just starting out. What was your first memory of taste? Uh, that's a good question. I think my first memory of taste was in Vermont. I was very young. We, we built a cabin in 1955. And this was a cabin where there was one room, which was also kitchen, dining room, living room, one bathroom, and two tiny little bedrooms with a half loft. I think it was a kit cabin that we had put together. And we had an old uh, White Mountain ice cream machine that was the crank kind. It wasn't electric. And I still remember it was a Saturday, late Saturday afternoon. 
it was sunny day in the summer and we were making peach ice cream and I was there with my sister cranking the thing. And um, the fact that we, we made it ourselves and it was so amazingly delicious. So I think that was my first memory. Most underrated ingredient for you? Salt. I know I mean, people, people I, freak I just out. don't understand. It, it just drives me insane. Like people go out to restaurants, they go, this tastes good. Yeah, you know why? Because they use salt, <laughs> right? And so 95% of your salt intake does not come from home cooking. It comes from you know, stuff you buy at the supermarket, from fast foods, from restaurants, some packaged foods. It, it's not in what you cook. So, uh, and also the relationship between salt and high ten, you know, tension and high high blood pressure is actually vastly overstated. Yeah. Uh, so for most people, it's less of an issue than you think. So, you know, add a little bit of extra salt. And before you serve something, a soup, a stew, whatever, obviously if it's baked good, it doesn't work. But if you can taste it before you serve it, just getting the salt level right is like can change it 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Do you think it's funny you say that two things about that? One of the first things I noticed when I moved to the US. I like I love to do people watching and I thought it was very interesting. People used to put even at a restaurant, so they serve, right? You get your plate and they put salt and pepper straight on the food without tasting, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. I was like, how how do you know if it's salty? But you always go under season, right? And then on the same thing about salt, I know a lot of people say, like, like you said, I have high blood pressure, you know, salt is very bad for me, but then they're eating a bag of chips. Kind of defeats the purpose of the whole thing, right? Yeah. And you also you you don't add that much salt. I mean a small amount of salt can take a bland soup and make it delicious. You know, you're not adding a tablespoon. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's this whole thing about, you know, the fat was the enemy for all of these years. And, and then it turns out actually it was probably sugar was like the bigger, the problem, yeah. but, but the fat industry, you know, the, the sugar industry was perfectly happy to have the fat industry like take the hit. So, and and then the other thing is, you get all these foods that are processed, they're low fat yogurt, not fat yogurt. I mean, it's like spackle, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's awful. So why don't you eat half as much whole, whole milk yogurt than low fat? Because low fat is, I, I don't know what it is, but it's processed food, right? Yeah. Don't process my food. So I'd rather eat full fat and you have a small portion than a big portion of low fat or not fat. Overrated ingredient for you. Oh God, whatever is the ingredient of the year. You know, I, I don't know if it's, you know, wh whether now it's, it's, is it crispy chicken skin this year is the, is the new thing. I've heard Swiss uh, chard this year. Yeah. Well, Swiss chard's fine. I mean, look, it, it's like, what it's like is getting a group of first graders and every year you pick one out and say, you're, you're the first grader of the year, you yeah. know, and next year it'll be somebody else. And it's, it's no rhyme or reason. I remember back in the eighties, it was Kiwis, you know, that became really popular. And then, you know, whatever. It, it's just like, that's what I don't like about American food culture is it, it has to be turned into a media experience and hype. It's like someone's got to write something. So they write about, you know, crispy chicken skin is the new thing, you know. Okay, well, instead of chicharrones, you know, which are a lot better, by the way, um, than, than chicken skin. What is a strange food combination that Christopher, you do, it, this happens a lot in sweet and salty world. Might be on a sandwich, might be a snack. When you put one, two, three ingredients together, that some people look at you and be like, that's a little weird. I give here examples. I, I always bring those examples back. I've heard people saying Nutella on toast with scrambled eggs on top, you know, popcorn and tomato soup, a peppermint inside of a dill pickle. Uh, I just heard the other day someone pouring coffee in their fried rice. So anything you do, 
that some people might think it's a little weird. Oh, there are a lot of things I do that people would Perfect. think. Perfect. Awesome. Talking about food. Good. Food. Um, well, no, I, I do think that, you know, sweet, sour, salt. I, I do think even if let's take a sandwich, right? I mean, you think like, well, there should be something slightly sweet there. There should be something slightly spicy there. There should be something slightly salty there. So I just think about combinations, right? So uh, for example, uh, warm spices like cinnamon are used in tomato sauce in Greece, or they're used in a lot of you know, cooking in the Middle East, of course, all, all those spice mixtures in the Middle East, you know, they're going to have cinnamon in it, you know, they're going to have allspice in it. So the idea of always thinking about warm spices versus cool spices versus spicy spices, and the idea that that sweetness is part of everything, not relegated to a dessert. Mm-hmm. And most of the world understands sweet and sour as, as, a, as a concept. So I think a little sweetness along with sour, along with heat, along with bitterness. You know, I love bitter. Bitter is something that is rarely used in this country. It is in the South a little bit, uh, but most cultures use bitter. The Chinese love bitter melon, for example. Um, texture, you know, in China, they love, you know, chicken feet or things that are chewy. So I, I like texture. I like bitter. I like sweet and sour and salty going together. So it's never just one thing. I think in America, very often, traditionally, we have something that's sweet, and then we have something that's salty, and then we have, you know, but we don't really combine well. So I don't, I don't do anything really weird. I'm just always trying to make sure those elements are there. I thought you were just going to say a sandwich with pigs, with chicken's feet and melon. I just thought that was the whole thing. Well, I didn't say I like chicken's feet. <laughs> I know. China, <laughs> they, they like the texture. I think... I think you have to get, you know, you, you have to spend some time there to get used to it. But I, a good friend of mine has, you know, wrote the the Food of Sichuan, his great book. And she spent, has spent a lot of time in China and, and speaks Mandarin, et cetera. And it took her some time, but she said after a couple of months, she really started to understand that mouthfeel and texture was really an integral part of eating. And she, and she loves it. Best midnight snack for you. I actually, oddly enough, once in a while will have a small bowl of cold cereal. Sure. So, you know, I don't know why. Maybe I'm like Seinfeld, but a little bit, listed a little bit of granola or muesli or something with some almond milk is something. You know, I, but the problem is I'm, I go to bed about eight thirty because okay. uh, I still have two young kids, and so I'm exhausted. I get up at five or five fifteen. I, I I haven't been awake at midnight for like twenty years. <laughs> so, um, so my 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 midnight stack is around eight. Okay. Um, or yeah, I I don't really, you know, we eat fairly early because we have young kids, and I don't, you know, I don't tend to eat anything much after that because I I don't like eating and going to bed. One meal you can have for the rest of your life. If I had to pick one thing, it would be chicken soup, and that's because every culture does chicken soup, and they all do it differently. You know, in Somalia, they have like two different kinds of hot sauces with it, and then Mexico, they they would do it with uh, maybe with tomatillo or they would use other spices and they put tortilla chips in it or you know maybe you'd have uh, broken rice in one version so i think that's the one thing that can change the most so you could have chicken soup every day and always be different okay the name of the podcast is turning chickens and breaking dishes those are actually two portuguese phrases turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded expectations do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes i don't do self-analysis i somebody okay. else somebody else is going to have to make that I, i i would say like look like all people there are times when you exceed expectations 
and surprise yourself. And the other times when you think you're really good at something, it turns out you're not. So I, I think that's the, the thing about life is you, you have no idea what you're doing most of the time and you have no way of judging how well you're doing. The other people have to kind of help you with that. So I had the amazing chef, Dan Barber. And then he just told me when I asked him this question, he was like, I don't know anything. I'm still, I just don't know right. anything. I was like, okay, then. Uh, well, you know, that, that, but that's, that's actually the mark of a great chef because someone, a great chef once told me, Jasper White said, you know, the next time you think you've invented a recipe, think again, pal, because it's been done. Like yeah. everything's been done. So you, you may do it slightly differently, but don't get cocky because the, the food the food world's been around a long time. So you, the, you inflated that pig bladder and used it to steam something. Yeah, well, someone did that in the 1600s probably. Yeah, then just a side note, talking with Dan, you can tell he's a guy that just breeds food and he just can't. It's interesting to see his mindset. He achieved what he achieved, but he, he still believes like, eh, I don't know anything, which is interesting. At the end of the podcast, I ask my guests to sell their fish. In Portugal, if someone to tell us to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself, you know, Milk Street, where people can find you, what's in the, what's in the, any projects for the future besides your Portuguese trip. Just tell everyone, just sell your fish, Christopher. Uh, my fish is at 177milkstreet.com. There you go. We do a podcast or, and broadcast every week called Mill Street. We do a TV show on public television, also on Roku. We have two new TV shows on Roku this year, uh, starting last fall. One is called My Family Recipe, where we resuscitate family recipes that are not working. Uh, and we have a cooking school show, which is, you know, we invite people around the world uh, to come and cook. We do magazines, we do books, we do cooking classes. I think our our, our philosophy, the, the essence of the fish is we travel the world. We like to cook with home cooks more than chefs. And we'd like them to teach us what they know. And then we come back here and see how we can adapt that to the kind of cooking people do here. So that's most people in the world think about cooking very differently than the average American home cook. And it's not so much the recipes. It's how you think about cooking, right? So I, we love to understand how other people think about food and how they put it together. Everyone's trying to get dinner on the table. So trying to rethink how we cook really is the essence of Milk Street and then turn that into a recipe you can actually use. But um, it's, it's not a function of taking a fancy recipe from Mumbai and replicating it. It's like, well, what is a curry? You know, what, what's the concept? Is it dry toasting spice, whole spices? Is it cooking spices in oil? You know, what's going on? And so it's really the philosophy and the attitude and the point of view of the of the cook in different places. And that's what's exciting to me. Before you go, what's for dinner tonight? Do you know? What is There are two things that are for dinner tonight. Tell um, me. Something I bring back from our kitchen because we cook like 20 things a day. And so I often do that. Or inevitably, it's going to be I cook a lot of rice. There's a, some medium grain Japanese rice I love. I cook it in a denabe, which is a a clay glazed uh, Japanese rice cooker. And then I put something on it. So that that's my basic go-to meal is, is a bowl of rice with something on it or a bowl of soba noodles with something on it. So noodles or grains of rice with a topping and it's whatever is sitting in the refrigerator ends up on top. Perfect. Christopher, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank all, you. All the best for you. And then when you go to Portugal, just let me know. I'll hook you up with good restaurants. Good deal. Bye. Thank you very much, Christopher, for coming on the podcast. If you actually heard some noise in the background, I apologize. There's some construction going on. So, hey, there's nothing I can do, okay? I'm not the mayor of the town, so they wouldn't stop for me. Thank you very much for listening. 
please don't forget to reach out to me at info at davidgmartins.com. That's info at D-A-V-I-D-E-G-M-A-R-T-I-N-S.com. Or you can follow my page on Instagram. That's my name, David G. Martins, Chef. I'll be back next week. Make sure you're safe. Make sure you're happy. Adios.